Moweni, Dumelang, Sambonani, and welcome to the Avrik podcast, a podcast that aims to bring clarity to the concept of violence and its consequences in the lives of victims and survivor groups, as well as the perpetrators and their descendants. In this episode, Rabia Abba Omar speaks about her research on the slave ship Shao Jose that she expanded and developed upon through the Avrik reading group sessions. This paper was also recently presented at the South African Visual Arts Historians Conference at DUT. Rabia is a researcher and curator working towards an MA in Visual Studies from this university and linked to our center, the Center for the Study of the Afterlife of Violence and the Reparative Quest for Short Africa. And so we are, it is such a joy to have you to come and speak today on your work. Rabia's master's is in collaboration with uh, Exeter University, a very special program, then international program called Imagining Futures of Unarchived Pasts. Her MA research reports from which she drew on this work today was titled Unshackled History, the wreck of the slave ship San Jose, 1794. She focused a lot on the experiences of the people who worked on the project, from diving, researching, and curating the exhibition to explore how their experiences were translated into the affective atmosphere of the exhibition. Let us please welcome Gabi. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, so good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining in person and virtually um, and for making the time to be here today. As Prof Pumla has said, my name is Rabia Abba Omar, and today I will be presenting some research I did while I was at Fitz University um, as part of Professor Isabel Hofmeyer's uh, Southern African Literature's Hydrocolonial Perspectives Project. On 27 December 1794, the Siao Jose Parqueche d'Africa wrecked near the shores of Cape Town just off Clifton Fourth Beach. The ship set sail from Mozambique Island with 512 enslaved people held in the hold. And as the ship wrecked, 212 enslaved people succumbed while it broke into pieces. The Zico Museum Slave Lodge in Cape Town has a permanent exhibition dedicated to this part of South Africa's slave history, entitled Unshackled History, the Wreck of the Slave Ship Siao Jose, 1794. My paper today looks at the ghostly echoes of the concreted objects found on the Siao Jose wreck site. A hard space in two senses, a place where hundreds of enslaved people died, and also a rough and tumultuous underwater environment. It uses concretions to explore how we can begin to consider human and more than human assemblages of history that lie below the waterline, and how we can use these to understand hard and violent histories and their legacies. I will explore the concreted shackles specifically in this paper, um, and those are found on the wreck site. And I argue that these human and more than human assemblages can also be read as assemblages of life and death, which are made up of artifactual and ecofactual matter in one form. Now I'll start by um, sketching out the journey of the slave ship Siao Jose from its departure in Lisbon to its discovery in Cape Town. On 27 April 1794, the Siao Jose Parqueche de Africa set sail from Lisbon to Portugal to Mozambique Island, just north of Mozambique, where it would take on board cargo. Enslaved Africans headed to the plantations of Maranhão in Brazil. When the Siao Jose left the shores of Mozambique Island, 512 enslaved people were confined in the ship's hold. On its way to Maranhão, the ship was meant to make a routine stop in Cape Town, a refreshment station for ships traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. On the evening of 17 December 1794, eight months after leaving Portugal, the Siao Jose Parqueche de Africa was caught in the storms and swells just off the coast of Cape Town. Strong southeasterly winds and rough seas meant that the ship could not anchor safely, and the ship hugged the coast throughout the night, and in the early hours of the morning, the crew realized the ship had failed to anchor properly, and after a second failed attempt at anchoring, the crew also realized that the stern of the Siao Jose had struck a rock beginning to take on water, and later it became wedged between two reefs. A third attempt to anchor was made to get the ship away from these rocks and reefs, but the rope of the ship's windlass snapped, 
and realizing how close they were to the shore, the captain and the crew set about to rescue everyone on board using a small boat, a raft, and a basket attached to a rope, which was attached to shore. The captain and crew made it to shore safely, as did 300 of the enslaved people on board the ship. The remaining 212 enslaved people drowned as the rough seas broke the ship to pieces and it sank to the bottom of the sea floor. The Siao Jose wrecked and sank no more than 100 meters off the shore of Kirkland. The surviving enslaved people were sold shortly after reaching Cape Town to local slave owners, except for 11 who died in the days after the tragic wreck. In 2015, the Slave Wrecks Project announced that they had found the remains of the Siao Jose Parqueche d'Africa. The Slave Wrecks Project is a global collaborative research project with the mission of uncovering lost and submerged stories to help communities understand and come to terms with a history that has for a long time been considered unknowable through the lens of using slave ships. The Zico Museums of South Africa and the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture partners of the Slave Rex Project. The textual archive on the Siao Jose is quite thin and spread out between South Africa and Portugal. However, from the few archival documents and the footnotes of other researchers, the researchers and divers of the Slave Rex project team were able to reconstruct the passage and the story of the Siao Jose. While looking for references to ships that wrecked near Cape Town at the height of the slave trade, Jakub Boshoff of the Yaziko Museums found a footnote of a reference of another researcher who was studying the Dutch East India Company Daily Journal, and it read, quote, a Portuguese ship ran aground in a place called Camps Bay approximately six kilometers from Cape Town, and 200 of the 500 slaves on board perished, end quote. This one passage provided a location for where the Slave Wrecks project team could start the search for a slave wreck in the waters around Cape Town. Later, the team found the deposition of the captain of the Siao Jose. In his deposition to a Dutch lawyer days after the wrecking, Captain Manuel Joao located the site of the wreckage under the well-known mountain Lion's Head. The discovery of this deposition refocused the search of the Slave Rex project team to concentrate their efforts on Clifton rather than on Camps Bay. The final discovery which confirmed the Slave Rex project team's hunch were the iron ballast bars. Jakub Boshoff discovered the first iron ballast bar about two feet in length weighing around 39 kilograms. This discovery was further supported by the, an archival discovery by Steve Lubkerman and Yolanda Teixeira Duarte, who found the cargo manifest of the Siao Jose in the archives in Lisbon, Portugal, and on it the first line read, 1,130 iron bars. Historically, iron bars have been used to offset the weight of a ship, and during the slave trade, since people were considered lighter cargo, the weight of the enslaved people in the hold. Only a handful of iron bar ballast bars have been found, and it is suggested that the iron bars were used in exchange for enslaved people at Mozambique Island. For the purpose of the South African Visual Arts Historians Conference this paper originated from, I described the wreck site where the remnants of the Siao Jose were found as a hard place, um, and this is for two reasons. Firstly, it is a place where over 200 enslaved people died as the rough seas broke the ship that they were on apart. There's little that we know about the people on the ship. The discovery of the Siao Jose was an important one for researchers of the slave trade. The discovery of the Siao Jose was an important one for researchers of the slave trade because it provided more information about the journey of slave ships from, of Portuguese slave ships from Mozambique to Brazil. As the late Peter Harris informs us, in 1793, a year before the departure of the Siao Jose from Lisbon, the Portuguese crown revoked its ban on enslaving people from its Mozambican colony in Brazil. A reason for this change of heart was because of the high demand for labor um, needed on plantations in Brazil and the desire to keep as much taxable income from the slave trade for the Portuguese. The first documented successful voyage of a Portuguese slave ship from Mozambique to Brazil was in 1795, 
and this ship would have sailed the exact same route as the Ciao Jose had attempted just one year prior. Secondly, the site is described as hard because it is a freezing cold, rough and dangerous site. Located between reefs and boulders, the divers I had interviewed all described the site as a washing machine, saying that when they were diving on the site, currents would push them from one side to the other in a matter of seconds, sending them spinning and turning and leaving them meters away from where they were previously. The video footage that I'm showing throughout this presentation um, is from the Unshackled History exhibition and was purposefully filmed on a calm day so that the audience of the footage um, of the underwater could see this underwater scene, but could actually see things. In Regarding Muslims from Slavery to Post-Apartheid, Khabeba Badarun writes that, quote, both the Atlantic and Indian oceans are oceans of middle passage, but also of cosmology, memory, and desire traced in the movement, language, and culture of enslaved and dominated people, end quote. To think of the seas or oceans as memory requires a reorientation from historical and geographic considerations away from the firmness of land and towards the fluid vastness of their watery being, as illustrated by Renisa Mawani. This means no longer being bound by the surface of land, but rather turning downwards and towards sinking deep within the depths of the ocean, much of which are still uncharted. In fact, more than 80% of the sea is still unmapped, unexplored and unobserved. In addition, it requires us to think of the many roles that the ocean plays and has played. Ecological environment, one over which storms develop, one in which we can find forms and remnants of human life and existence, like the Pacific garbage patch or underwater cultural heritage, such as shipwrecks. Also one where there's a thriving sea life, coral, fish, and various other microscopic organisms. Renisa Mawani also points out that viewing the ocean as a holding space of slavery and of memory reminds us that these two are deeply connected and that these histories of capital, exploitation, racial discrimination and death are connected with the sea. In addition, she suggests that by reading the ship as a historical artifact and as memory, we glean from it the interconnected histories of geography that lie below the waterline, the developments of technology, the development of global capitalism, and the forced passages of enslaved, of enslaved people, of migrants and refugees, all which are ongoing today. Central to today's presentation is the shackles found on the wreck site of the Siao Jose, and the, the question of what can these tell us if we read them as memory artifact, as Mawani suggests we do with the ship. Just over 228 years after the physical journey of the slave ship Siao Jose, the ship continues a different journey by helping us to remember and grapple with the global impact of the Atlantic and Indian Ocean slave trades. The Unshackled History Exhibition um, is based at the Ezeko Museum Slave Lodge in Cape Town, close to Company Gardens. And the exhibition opened on the 12th of December, 2018, and it guides visitors through the story of the slave ship Siao Jose. The exhibition was primarily cu curated by Yaku Bosho, alongside his colleagues in the Marine Archaeology Department at the Ezeko Museum, as well as the curators at the Ezeko Slave Lodge. Importantly, when the archival record is so limited, as it is with the Siao Jose, the ship and the objects found around and in the wreck site are vitally important or necessary in guiding us to understand the story of the Siao Jose, which is why I'm focusing on the concreted shackles. So far, there's only been one piece of archival documentation about an enslaved person on the Siao Jose, an unnamed man who was kept in the gallows by the Sheikh of Morganical in order to repay the debts of one Joaquim de Arenara e Oliveira, and who was sold to Captain Manuel Joao and put on board the Siao Jose. We only know about him because Joaquim de Arenara e Oliveira wanted compensation from him. For him, sorry. And this is the difficult history that we have to contend with. In his video presentation for the Post-Imperial Oceanics Conference in 2020, Killian Quigley describes concreted objects as, quote, ambiguous assemblages of human and more than human, artifactual and ecofactual matter, conduct and history. He asks how we can interpret these processes of making oceanic memory that are ongoing and their futurity. Commonly mistaken for fossils, 
concretions are geological structures made of sediment and species and other organisms form inside the gaps within rocks and underwater objects. The preservation for submerged items is a very long one with many calculated steps needed to stabilize the objects that have been removed from their salty underwater environment and brought onto dry land. The process needs to happen in order to stabilize the object so that they can no longer continue to decay and rather can be preserved. And in the case of many concreted objects, a lot of focus is placed on removing the concreted matter entirely um, in order to study the original object, as we see with the shackles that I'll be talking about today. And what I want to ask about this is what conceptual possibilities can emerge when we engage with the object and the concretion on it? So not separating the two, but engaging with them together. Ian Quigley draws out three possible outcomes for concretion. And I want to focus on two of them specifically and focusing on how they relate to the shackles found on the slave ship Siao Jose. The first process is preservation. As the items are submerged, they begin to erode. And as the process of erosion takes place with iron, for example, the iron bonds with other materials in the salty water, which creates a barrier around the object, thus encrusting the object in a boundary um, between it and the salty water of the ocean. This process then creates a type of in-situ preservation and preserves the encrusted object. The second process I want to highlight from Quigley's presentation is obfuscation, which he describes as, quote, making giant blobs, mysterious and unrecognizable lumps, thick, formless mass, end quote. These are the objects that are not easily recognizable on the sea floor due to the processes of erosion and the mixing of matter, such as algae, spongy organisms, or bryozoans, which are aquatic invertebrate. One of the items found on the wreck site of the Siao Jose were blobs, which at first glance looked like rocks, but the marine archeology span team knew that they weren't just rocks. The process of, of, of obfuscation had rendered the shackles an unrecognizable blob until they were x-rayed. And as described on the Ezeco Museum's website, the concreted shackles were, quote, very difficult to recognize to the untrained eye, end quote. The iron of the shackles had corroded and the iron had chemically bonded with sea sand, shells, and organisms on the seabed. And as more and more of the iron corroded, the thicker the layer of concretion around the shackles became. And this layer preserved an outline of the shackles but in many parts, the actual shackles themselves have corroded completely. Once the shackles were on land, the process of preserving them began. And central to this was strengthening the remaining iron of the shackles to remove whatever concreted matter was around them and had helped preserve them for over 220 years underwater. First, the shackles were treated in a salt bath to slow the corrosive process. This process required a series of saltwater baths that were also used to remove chlorides that were on the outermost layers of the concretion. Throughout the process of electrolysis, the concreted matter was then slowly removed off the remaining form, and the remaining iron of the shackles was strengthened. Lastly, removing the last remaining concreted matter was done by use of an x-ray. And now I'm just gonna backtrack for a little and I want to pause and look at the X-ray of the shackle. Before being brought onto land, the shackles were preserved and obscured by the concreted matter and the shackles only became visible once the concreted mass was X-rayed. These X-rays showed the remains of the shackle. The metal had in some places completely corroded, but there were spaces which contained the shackles. The darker parts, are the gaps and the lighter parts are where there is remaining metal. And here we can see very clearly a ghostly form of the shackles, the ghostly form of an object that was used within the slave trade. And thinking through this, I'm briefly reminded of the words of Avery Gordon, which is to study social life, one must confront the ghostly aspects of it. And when looking at the x-rays, I see this ghostly aspect. It's not the actual object of slavery, it's not the actual shackles that were used to enslave people, but those enslaved on the Siao Jose. 
And from this, we can see the shadows of the slave trade hovering before us. And how does looking at these shackles allow us to understand global histories of enslavement? Or how can we use these ghostly shackles to think through the violence of slavery that haunts us in the present day? These concreted forms of the shackles became echoes of what they were centuries ago. They are not the actual shackles, but the concretion is made of them. It enveloped them and it obscured them. These concretized items are echoes left as markers of history, the technological developments and the history of slavery. They serve as part of a ghostly archive, which are the legacies and the traces of the slave trade that are around us. Or in this case, sitting on the sea floor, a hundred meters away from Clifton Fourth Beach. Furthermore, their amphibious entanglements, objects that started out on land, were later submerged and eroded on the seafloor and then became an amphibious mix of land and sea. In some cases, concreted matter is studied and valued for its contributions. And this can be seen in the work of Neil Lantman and Susan Colflack, who look at the anatomy of concreted matter. Concretions can contain fossils, which are helpful in paleobiological studies, um, and the concretion and the fossils in concretions can tell us what types of organisms lived in different waters and in different water columns. Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guitari write on assemblages as existence of heterogeneous elements without reducing them to totalizing them, but allowing us to think of them as both and not either or. And that is what's inspired my thinking of exploring concreted shackles as assemblages of life and death in one form. Assemblages have elemental parts, so human, social, or mechanical elements, for example, and by including environmental and non-human, we can view these shackles as assemblages of life and death. But what do I mean by life and death? So on one hand, the concreted matter is made up of organisms that lived, sea organisms, many of which have died or become trapped within the growing encrusting layers of the concreted matter. In the case of the shackles, the ghostly echoes left represent the violence and the horrors of the slave trade, yet the actual objects used to enforce and enslave have naturally corroded into the sea. And thus they are also chemically holding the history of slavery. This is also gestured to by Christina Sharp in her book, In the Wake, where she writes about residence time. Residence time is the amount of time a substance takes to enter and leave the ocean. And Sharp considers this in relation to African people who jumped or were thrown overboard ships in the Middle Passage and the traces of them that are still around today, left in the wake of the ship and mixed with the ocean. She writes that the residence time of sodium, a component of human blood, is 260 million years old. And with this in mind, and in thinking about the history of the Siao Jose and the 212 enslaved people that drowned in the wrecking, it is therefore possible to think of the drowned as still existing, elementally at least, over 228 years of the wrecking of the Siao Jose and also chemically as part of the ocean. The object of slavery, in this case, the shackle and the people bound into slavery intermingle with the sea, and the concretion then becomes a tangible representation of those forgotten, what it's preserved, and the existing life within the ocean, which is why I describe it as an assemblage of life and death. In conclusion today, my, pres my presentation has sketched out the history of the slave ship Siao Jose, and central to this is thinking about the multiple transnational and transoceanic entanglements that make up its continuing history and the knowledge and memory we have on slavery. The concreted shackles are ecofactual, objects that are biological and not fully made or not primarily made or indicative of human life, and artifactual objects, objects that are indicative of human life, human interests, and human culture. They become forms of life, oceanic life, the organisms that I've mentioned, as well as forms of human death and terror. Lastly, the concreted shackles help us to reconstruct the past on a story where there is a very limited archival knowledge of it. And by studying the concreted matter, which I hope can happen, we can glean more about the oceanic environment which preserved and almost rendered the shackles invisible. And thus I 
propose reading them as one total form rather than separate. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for this inspiring presentation. Well, I take advantage of my position, of course, yes. as chair. <laughs> and we have to ask, uh, kick off with asking the first question. You know, the first is not a question, it's more a comment. What's so striking about this is there's been so much written about the transatlantic slave trade. And often it's a reference to slavery in the United States, very much North American, very little on the passaging via the southern part of our oceans. And I wonder, I mean, just a comment whether you're thinking about just this scholarship in this field of enslavement in these areas of ours when there is such a physical presence of a ship that sunk within South African borders and our own history of slavery. I wonder what, you know, what your thoughts are about just this field of, of that has become a booming mm -hmm. field of interest within the scholarly community in the northern parts of, of the globe. That's one, it's a comment. The other one is a question. This notion of the imagery that you use of ghosts, you know, the ghostly, the language of ghosts in reference to the artifacts, so rather not you know, one might consider them, you know, artifacts, but these are the concrete remembrances of what existed at the time with the people who were killed and the evidence that they were shackled with these iron bars. I'm wondering about the language. I know that it's it's kind of, you know, it's acceptable to refer to ghostly, to the language of ghosts, but I wonder whether the language helps us to forget, you know, mm -hmm. by insisting on referencing these, what was left as ghosts or as aspects of ghosts. I would like to challenge you and us as well, because, you know, we draw on this language quite a lot. But doesn't this language reinforce the forgetting mm -hmm. or the tendency to forget rather than to think of it as something that lives at the bottom of the ocean and is present, in fact, sometimes often within our own bodies in ways that we are not always aware of? Mm -hmm. Does the ghostly language bring us back to recognition of the actual presence of these people who were brought, not only the 212, but many others. Copy, yes. The, the event was actually at 34 Third Beach, Clifton and San Jose sank between second and third. It was exceptionally memorable for a whole variety of reasons. The Smithsonian African American Museum which I would say is the greatest museum on earth today in terms of the evocation, the storytelling, and so on. We're very involved in the project. Mm -hmm. And the head then of the Smithsonian, of the African American Museum, Lonnie Bunch, he arranged for people to go to the Mozambique Island it's a very beautiful island of a sort of Luso-Indian-African culture. Pretty. And they bought some sand. And the idea was the sand would be brought to help bury Mozambique and sand, provide a kind of burial earth for the 215 people who died. The diver, the scuba diver, was African-American and it was like startling. Scuba divers are white <laughs> in South Africa and here was this black man of African origin togged out. It was a wonderful disruption mm -hmm. for, for all of us. We had people from the Mozambican embassy there and a youngish woman, the third secretary from the Brazilian embassy. And we had the poet, uh, Teresa, I think her name is? Diana Ferris. Diana, Diana, yeah. yes. And multiple layers of intervention, 
a kind of transatlantic trade in beautiful trade in ideas. Portugal wasn't itself represented, but Mozambique, Brazil, African American, North America, and right at the end, the woman from Brazil in our house. People come there, they take off their shoes. And she was barefoot, and she sang a song that's sung in Brazil mm -hmm. on a certain day every year to honor the people who came from Africa. And a very soft voice, uh, it came from nowhere. It was just like all these accretions, if you like, mm -hmm. of, of human memory. The story didn't end there. A couple of years later, I'm taking a group of, we want to set up a museum and archive on Constitution Hill. And we want to look at North American museums and meet museum people. The highlight by far was the day at the Smithsonian African American. Mm -hmm. And they treated us kind of beautifully and spent hours. And Ronnie Bunch himself was there. And at one stage, they said, you must come upstairs so that basement, the lowest level of the African American Museum, the darker part, the underground part, the submerged part, deals with the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. And in physical terms, in projection terms, material terms, there's a piece of timber from the San Jose that is like the pivot of the whole extraordinary exhibition. It's that one fragment, that physical fragment of the people who were, can you imagine, 500 people in a little ship, shackled. No, it, it's just beyond comprehension, you know. Uh, there's that one piece of timber, and what's so striking about the African-American Museum is, it's not a museum of rage, it's not a museum of denunciation. These museums are needed. It's a museum of affirmation. It's a museum of adaptation. It's a museum of survival. It's a museum of resilience. It's a museum of creativity. And you brought into that realm, it's darker, and the sense of the ocean the sea is there. And there's that little piece. To some extent, it's a little bit of an answer to the ghost mm -hmm. part. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. it's living now, mm -hmm. because people come there. Mm -hmm. And people bring their children and their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I feel a little shocked at our, mm -hmm. it's called the State Museum. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to take my child there. Mm -hmm. It shows pain and mm -hmm. castigation and humiliation. And I would not have hesitated to take him to the African American Museum because you brought into that age, into that period, and you made aware of the beautiful, thoughtful, sensitive curation of pain, mm -hmm. of, of almost unimaginable horror. There's a, a strength, a mental and imaginative strength in being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And not just to cry rage, but to contain, if you like, rage and transmute it into affirmation and history and storytelling. You have to queue, you have to book to get into that museum. It's the only museum in the world I, I know of. Occasionally, art galleries have a big Picasso something you have to book. But museums, you don't book for, you have to book to get in there. Uh, the last point I want to make that came through very, very strongly. And I think that also corresponds to responds to the, the ghost. Mm -hmm. The three hundred people who survived and were sold to slavery. And I think it was Diana who mentioned that they became part of what's called the Kadath community mm -hmm. of Cape Town, the working class. And they were called the Mozambicans. Now that's a wonderful piece of research that I feel you know, it, it's the opposite of accretion. It's, it's, it's a kind of osmotic involvement of people who would be speaking African languages in Mozambique. They're now 
forcibly like slaves always were, deprived of the use of their language, their culture and so on, but they become part of a new, a new humanity. And humanity that's been struggling for its freedom and, and made huge advances, but still, you know, the imprint of the impact of the, the inequalities, the injustices are, are still there. To conclude then, they're walking with me, all of them, upstairs. You know, what, what, what's going on? You know, we're all walking together, walking, 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 and then we come to the part of so it's, it's the transatlantic trade, it's the period of oppression and resistance, and we see, as an example, Emmett Till, mm. the famous example of somebody who was legally lynched mm -hmm. for touching a white woman, allegedly. And they explain, we don't tell the story of Emmett Till, we tell the story of his mother. His mother, who campaigned and fought for him and traveled around the United States and raised awareness. So everybody can identify with the mother. Mm. You can do something about it rather than identifying with the victim, you know, who, who, who died in that way. And, and so this is the way I see the connections between that ancient period going and actually being taken by the scientists. Mm. And I can't stand it. These things have to be in, in water for, I think, nine months. We're impatient. We're talking about time. You can't bear the idea of 200 years of accretion, and it's taking you months and months and months even to get rid of that. But it's a kind of forcing you to slow down. And in that sense, respect the ocean. You know, that, that's kind of valuable in itself. I mean, this gives you some idea of the the multiple layers of, of, of memory, of mm. thought, uh, and what am I saying? I forgot to mention, and there's L.B. Sachs talking in the African-American Museum, mm -hmm. me, uh, and, and I kind of get a shock, uh, and that's why they're all following me, they want to see my surprise, and I remember they recorded me, and maybe this is also the other layer, uh, and also a challenge to Cape Town, that here we've got this, I said, I'm living in paradise, mm -hmm. and I discover I'm living in hell. Mm -hmm. And it, it's more than a metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't get a more stark representation of the tensions, the inequalities, mm -hmm. that Clifton is now associated with yeah. mm -hmm. wealth, yeah. and ease and ultimate destination and where the millionaires go to get their feet because they love walking in the sand <laughs> and not being all dressed up and they love just being able to have a dip. And that, that's Clifton. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's the, the other Clifton. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other Clifton being honored in, in this exceptionally beautiful way and makes you feel proud to be part of, of an academic, scholarly, um, museological community mm. that's got the sensibility, the feeling, the thoughtfulness. Mm. Uh, and it was a wonderful moment. We, we, we had to cut down the top of a tree so that people could see the place and the space where the diver went in. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there was this community from North America, from Brazil, from Mozambique, from, from South Africa, uh, joined, mm. conjoined, mm. that's the ultimate word, mm. that, that it's not the ancestors, it's, it's, it's there must be a word. Uh, and I think Cape Town also needs some way of, of marking that place in space that's mm. not clumsy, it's got to be super refined mm -hmm. out of respect for the nature of the place. Mm -hmm. There could be telescopes from different areas, mm -hmm. a little plaque, um, mm -hmm. not like a flag on top of the <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Thank you very much, Elvie. I think to maybe touch on what you've mentioned about that memorial service, Senor Evan Ngoache, who is one of the leaders in Mozambique Island at that area where the fort is. He 
gave the Slave Rex project team a cowry shell basket with soil from Mozambique Island with the command that they must bury it on the wreck site so that the ancestors who are there know that they've never been forgotten. And in my interviews, some really, I guess, very, I don't like using the word interesting, so I, I think it's very moving things came out. So on the day that Judge Albee is speaking about the divers, the sea was so rough very suddenly that they couldn't go to the site that day and they had to wait for it to calm down. And some of the divers have remarked that they were wondering whether it is some kind of like ancestral movement that was shaking up the ocean in that moment because very suddenly it became very tumultuous and then they had to go back a couple of days later to dive and deposit the soil. Prof Pumla, your questions. <laughs> so I think there has been an increase in scholarly engagement in South Africa on the slave trade and on slavery in South Africa. And I think linking it as well to the Indian Ocean world, and that has been growing, that's already existed and has been growing and becoming more prominent in recent years. And I think what's very interesting about the waters around Cape Town or around the Western Cape is they're described as ship, ship traps. So because it's so rough, it's so um, tumultuous, and because of the rocks and the boulders and the reefs, they often have trapped ships. So we don't have, we have records of the ships that were, have wrecked, but we don't have records of people who have dived or found anything on all of those wreck sites. So there's many that are still left unfound. Um, we don't know what, what, where they are, or, or we know where, we have some idea where they are, um, but we don't know what state they're in. And it's in the process of figuring out what the slave ship Seattle Jose was. So they knew that there was a wreck and there were three big wrecks in that broad area of Clifton. And so slowly through the process of doing more research, they whittled down the list to the Seattle Jose. And so these can, these are all different. One was another slave ship which was carrying provisions and then another was a ship from World War One. I think figuring out and discover, I think, yeah, whittling down the list or um, figuring out exactly what you're looking at or what the divers were looking at was, was very key. Um, and like I said, the, the iron ballast bars were one of the big, the big clues. On the language of ghosts, I think in some ways, thinking of ghosts as invisible and as not having a presence helps us to forget. But if we think of ghosts and use the language of ghosts in terms of thinking of things that maybe, like the shackles, aren't exactly visible, but we know that they exist in some form, maybe not the form that they originally were, that language does help us articulate those remnants and as the word that we use here, the afterlives. So I think there is some benefit to the, the, the word ghosts. I don't have an alternative just yet. Megan? Nice to hear the oceanic work being presented in such an interesting, beautiful way and interesting space. Um, I'm, I'm following through with what's just come up with the ghosts and the language and um, um, haunting mm -hmm. is being commonly used as a way to, I think, move away from what's invisible and what's instead affectively attached to a person. So I'm sure you're familiar with this, but um, in the ways I think that ghostliness and hauntingness produces material, materiality produces matter. Being, uh, there, there's some interesting literature, especially in the Caribbean, about being haunted by slaves, for example, um, especially in um, the voodoo religion and the different deities and practices that then come from that become quite materialized and concretized because there's no ability to release from that memory that persists. So it's coming, it's almost coming into this present world because it's been suppressed, silenced, pushed into a sinkhole mm. that has excess, right? Mm. So that excess is this kind of grabbing, haunting, mm. that brings, that matters this world. And I think there's perhaps what you're touching on here, um, this part with the divers going down and then experiencing a sudden change of uh, oceanic activity that mm. stirs. Um, these kinds of moments, um, at least in the sciences and marine biology, I think are not really taken seriously enough because they don't fit into kind of paradigms of methodologies. So there's a lot that the humanities can do inside these spaces and it's really interesting to see that the embodied experience of 
what happens when you're engaging in these spaces, mm. often through scientific paradigms because that kind of training gets you into these positions, mm. for example. Mm. But there's more to it. Mm. So that kind of transdisciplinary crossing over mm. is so interesting. Thank you. And, and that was something that I, um, that I experienced. So everyone that I interviewed had a moment where and nearly everyone was traditionally from the sciences, so marine archaeology, um, had a moment where the project shifted for them. And it was no longer just science mm. and no longer just diving. Mm. Um, and that's what I really wanted to capture mm. or to look at how that's captured within the exhibition. And it isn't really, the, the exhibition is quite scientific, but that moment which people had changed their perspectives on the project completely. So it was no longer just, I'm going out to the site and I'm diving and it's difficult, but it's like, oh, these were people and these were histories and these this happened and it's, we are living with all of this today and my all my family members are living with this today and that grappling that that the researchers and the divers had to do was very important in, in shifting that away from just purely scientific the value of the humanities i mean also you know even when we, we venture into the terrain of the humanities as a language or as a as a frame for us to look into what's happening to not so much look for answers the unexpected, it doesn't have a language that we, it may not have a language, you know, that we are constantly looking for explanation, which sometimes does not lead us to words in that sense of there is a word for it. You know, sometimes there are things that you really, it's an occurrence, it's a phenomenon, it's a, you know, you're encountering it, that makes it valuable and the fact that you can name it or you can explain it doesn't make it less important mm -hmm. in the discovery of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's a different kind of knowledge production mm -hmm. that doesn't lead us to words necessarily. Mm -hmm. And that becomes our challenge. I mean, we were watching Adi as he was sharing with us what happened and mm -hmm. you could see the embodied, mm -hmm. you know, how even now he's talking about something that happened several years yeah. back. But it's so present that you could feel just in the way that he was talking and expressing, how do you talk about this? You know, what does Agu say when he says, you know, it says my body and he gestures in this way. Mm -hmm. So there's something about all of that mm -hmm. that calls us into to finding ways of conveying that these things live, you know, lived memory mm -hmm. of this past that as you can see is playing out in the way that you know we are all connecting with it. Thank you Rabia for your presentation. I can see that you're passionate about the work and you took time to really um, go deep into it. My question is maybe just more of a personal one about um, what led to your interest in it and, and where you situate yourself with and if that's something you're considering. Thank you. I'm obviously not. I think what I found inspiring of your paper was just on a theoretical level, also bringing lots of binaries and dichotomies together. So, you know, I work on this project of the human rights of future generations and looking at indigenous knowledge systems of the living dead, the living and the yet to be born, living in harmony with um, the natural environment. I was just thinking of you bringing archaeology, oceanography together in a sort of theography of, of slavery. To what extent can that also start giving us some insights on the environmental harms and how that intersected with sort of the indignity of that time? Um, and how can that also destabilize the way that you understand those moments? Anyone else? So, Ajoma, what drew me to this was. So after studying and doing my honours here in Stellenbosch in history, I wanted to work or do work that looked at how does history impact the present. And I didn't really know the language for that, but I knew that like just studying the past and leaving the past in the past wasn't what I was interested in. <laughs> and so spoke to Professor Isabel Hofmey, who Megan has also worked with. We were Oceanic Humanities um, buddies. Um, and then, <laughs> And then, and, and Dr. Nicola Clitter from FITS, and 
started looking at heritage studies and that sort of gave me a language to look at how does the past impact the present and I've always been drawn to studying slave history and histories of enslavement and how that happened and looked like and took place in South Africa um whether that's because I'm trying to figure out my own family history or not I have yet to figure out um but I think knowing someone else's story which might be akin to my own family's is helpful yeah and so I came across Robert Ross's work on slave history in South Africa um, and then also came across a map of slave shipwrecks along uh, Cape Town and just started Googling each of them to see what I could find and was yeah, came across the Seattle Jose and that's sort of what drew me into this this project and then yeah, I started looking at the exhibition and then it became what it is today. Yeah. <laughs> And I think there's so much benefit to interdisciplinary work and to looking across disciplines. In our reading group um, with Izzel, we recently read Catherine McPatrick's Dear Science and Other Stories. And I think the way that she writes about the benefit of interdisciplinary study in storytelling and how we can use storytelling to help us understand parts of history or parts of people's experiences is really powerful. And so I do think that there's space for looking at environmental harm and bringing that environmental lens into this work. In terms of this project, I am really interested to know what's in the concretions and I haven't been able to get an answer from that. And I would love if there was some kind of study or work done on the concreted matter so that we could find out what fossils are there, what sediment it is, what what other types of organisms are bound together in this mass. Okay, so this is from Zahura. They want to know if the co-creation of the museum exhibition was with local people and if they participated, what their role was. So in the Iziko Museums, it was not. The museum was curated primarily by Jakub Boshoff and then with his team in the marine archaeology um, part of the Iziko Museums and then uh, collaborators from the Iziko Slave Lodge as well. There are other museum exhibitions on the Sierra Jose, so like Albi has said, at the um, African-American Museum of History and Culture and as well on Mozambique Island. And so the one on Mozambique Island is slightly different in that it does present more of the social story. I think in history, the, it's like a more of a so, it would be more of a social history kind of lens than a scientific lens, which is in the Ezeka Museums. Or as far as I know, not curated with the people on Mozambique Island, but they did have input in what was written. Hallam? Just something briefly. I, I, I wonder if anything has been done to trace some of the family histories of the people who actually survived. And linked to this question about community involvement, wouldn't that be a wonderful way also to actually try and trace with the way people can trace yeah. these days mm-hmm. and begin to capture some of those stories? I wonder, has anything been transmitted across generations of family stories mm-hmm of people who are somehow connected, but to flesh out that part of the story and then to weave it back into this exhibition or this kind of exhibition, I think could be a really fascinating, um, I'm sure some people have done work on this. So that's just, and then as perhaps a comment, and you know we've had this conversation, but I'm intrigued by what your work in this particular case is contributing to our understanding of the reparative quest in Africa and beyond. Because by bringing in the oceanic dimension, and I'm thinking at the moment at this university, people are talking about the need to deepen transformation. Mm-hmm. Once you begin to reflect on what does it mean to deepen mm-hmm. transformation, then I think you're providing us with not only a metaphor, but actually a very concrete way to say, this is what it means <laughs> to deepen transformation. <laughs> so let's talk about how do we do this together. So, so thank you for that. Um, Ravia, thank you so much for this presentation. I literally like tear up every time I think about the conversations you've had. Um, and I'm particularly interested in this memory um, aspect. And I'm wondering now, as a historian who embarked on this and also as a curator who embarked on this project, would you say our role as historians, because I'm, I, I, you know, in my own research, I'm also thinking of the physical and you know, how, how do we read the physical also as a site of memory? What was your process really in doing that? As a, do you think you curated, you did a curation in your project? 
or do you think it was more historical um sort of like a historiography the blueprint like that because I, I view this as you having curated mm-hmm. this for us I, for, for honesty for me this is but do you think what do you think this process has done for you both as a curator and as a historian we could do another and then it's all okay. you refer to the amphibious nature of the objects that were found but i'm particularly interested in what ways does your work speak to um either public engagement or the ways in which this history has been memorialized in these three different contexts. For instance, you speak about the social history aspect, and then I've seen this exhibition, and those clips that you show is prominent in Ezekiel, and in the difference, how that is different to the North American context. So how does your work speak to various iterations of this history? Just connecting to what Nomzamo has said um, about you as curator, what struck me throughout was the beauty of the objects and also the way you you present them and speak of them with the concretions. And, and I mean, these are such horrific objects, actually. So it's like a mixture of horror, but also real beauty. And I was thinking, obviously, you as a curator and as someone like who, who looks at things, like obviously that beauty is there or you relate to it in some aesthetic sense and then it's so weird to look at objects such as this as beautiful ob- objects but it's also of course what the ocean did to them what what makes them beautiful so I was just if you want to reflect on that as part of thinking of your role as curator yeah some really nice questions thank you mm-hmm. so yes this project was definitely curated in the way that I looked at it looking at the specific, in this case, the specific object. So there were many objects that were found on the wreck site. So you have like forks and um, pieces of wood and the shackles and the pulley block and then the iron bars. But what drew me specifically in this, especially with this, was the concreted matter and this very strong urge from the scientific side to get rid of it. And we have to preserve the object and we can get rid of the concreted matter. But, and that's, and then in thinking of and conceptualizing as a, I think also as a curator, maybe I'm, I'm interested in how can we think of the two together? And as this object, as it was, and as it was preserved underwater without separating them. Yeah. So there's another object that I also love talking about from the wreck of the Stade Rosé, which is a piece of wood. Um, and it's a type of wood found in Mozambique, which is so dense that it survived the 220 years underwater. And on it, uh, and the, the water damage is only a few centimeters deep. So it's like this massive, very chunky piece of wood. And on it are mollusks that are only found in the intertidal zones around Mozambique. And those have traveled on the ship. And when the ship wrecked, those mollusks lived and then died in the waters around Cape Town. And you still have those shells, those shells of the mollusks on the, the piece of wood. And that as well, just thinking about how ocean life travels forcefully and how we've forced that that movement and that passage. Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that we can conceptualize that. And then to think with the amphibian in terms of the different iterations of the museum, what I was trying to understand and part of my research was how do the ways that the curators perceive these objects and perceive this history impact the way that the history is told. So, and then also looking at the wider museum space. So at the National Museum for African-American History and Culture, um, it's built up in different layers. So the bottom layer is slavery, and then you build up through the African-American experience in the US. Whereas in the, and and so then the objects of the Seattle Jose are used as examples of broadly the slave trade, but also then touch points within speci- with a specific story. Even though the Seattle Jose was never destined for the US, it was n- no connection that we know of yet or now to the to the America, to the, the North America, whereas there was for South America. Um, whereas in South Africa at the Slave Lodge, the exhibition is almost viewed as like this is an example of a ship. 
So you are guided through the introductions to, to slavery and the slave trade, um, that there are many ships, the column of memory, and then you get to the story of the Sierra Jose. And that's more to tell you the story of excavation, the story of preservation. The museum in Mozambique, so I've only just seen the Museum of African-American History and Culture. I've also only seen the images of that and then interviewed people. So the that is part of a museum on Mozambique Island. And it's a room with, um, it's pretty standard and it's panels with text, um, but there are no objects there. And so that's also another question that we can ask of like, who gets the objects and what does it mean in terms of who is allowed to have them and whose history it belongs to. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more, you can check out our website.